0: If you have your Bibles, turn to Ecclesiastes, please. Book of Ecclesiastes, Old Testament wisdom literature. We're going to be spending a few weeks in this book. Um, Not going to get through all of it, but we'll get through enough of it. It'll give you a sense for what the author's trying to get done in penning this piece of work. We're going to begin with Ecclesiastes 1. Bill Murray plays the character weatherman Phil Connors in the famous movie Groundhog Day where he relives February 2nd, Groundhog Day, over and over again in Punxsutawney, uh, Pennsylvania where this main festival uh, takes place. Uh, Some obsessive viewers speculate that Phil may have relived that one day for more than three decades, over 30 years in one day. And the movie captures what he tries to do to look for happiness and uh, some semblance of meaning. There's a scene where Phil is in the diner and he's gorging himself at a table full of food. He's drinking coffee straight from the pot. He's smoking a cigarette. Uh, He punches out a guy that really annoys him. When all this uh, fails, he turns to greed. He robs an armored truck... (laughs) And uses the money to buy the car and the clothes that he's always wanted but never been able to to have for himself when this doesn't satisfy Phil turns to despair he ends up taking his life multiple times only to find himself right back where he started Punxsutawney Pennsylvania on Groundhog Day finally he turns to knowledge. He tries to learn and better himself. He takes up piano and ice sculpting and French poetry and all in an attempt to become a well-rounded man. And all of this in pursuit of finding some semblance of meaning. There's a really interesting scene in the movie really early on in Phil's experience of this day when he's trying to figure out what's going on. And uh, he's at a bowling alley, he's sitting at the bar with a couple of local guys there and he asks them this question. He says, what would you do if you were stuck in one place and every day was the same, and nothing you did really mattered? It's the question he asks. One of the men that he's sitting with stares into his beer mug and says, yep, that about sums it up for me. Life is more like groundhog day than we would like to admit. And this is precisely the topic the Book of Ecclesiastes takes up. If all there is to life is the alarm clock in the morning, the the morning routines as you get ready to head off to work or to school, and then after all that's done, hitting the gym or, or eating dinner or going to bed, doing it all over again the next day. If that's all there is, then what's the point? Life can feel like a monotonous prison. And it is certainly vexing. Barry Webb in his little book on Ecclesiastes sums up the book like this. He says, Ecclesiastes is perhaps the most enigmatic book in the Old Testament. Like the desert sphinx, it teases us with questions, yields its secrets only grudgingly and will not allow us the luxury of easy answers. In other words, it is thoroughly irritating but at the same time almost mesmeric in its appeal it draws us towards it by mirroring the perplexity we all feel as we grapple with life Ecclesiastes is written by someone who's identified as a preacher or a teacher, depending on which translation you're looking at. I'm going to refer to him as a philosophy professor, and the reason I'm going to refer to him that way will become very apparent as we dig into even the first chapter. The real question this philosophy professor is confronting us with is actually found in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? That's the question. What do people gain? from all their labors at which they toil under the sun. He's, he's reflecting on, he's wrestling with the deepest questions of life. Let me try to illustrate what he's wanting to confront us with. Suppose a friend of yours was to come up to you and say to you, hey, this Tuesday from 3 to 5 p.m., I want you to stand on the corner of Cedarburg Road and Pioneer. This Tuesday from 3 to 5 p.m., I want you to go out there, stand on the corner of Cedarburg Road and Pioneer. You would say to your friend, Why? Good question. Your friend says to you, Well, look, I'm your friend. I asked you, so Tuesday, 3 to 5 p.m., Cedarburg Road, Pioneer, just stand there. And you would say, Well, look, okay, look, you're my friend, but I really need to know why. What is this going to accomplish? What's the purpose for this? It's a perfectly natural way to respond to a request like that. The book of Ecclesiastes is saying to us, look, you will ask that question about how you'll spend your Tuesday afternoon. But will you ask that question about how you're gonna spend your life? How do you know your life isn't a waste? How do you know you're not just going about through life as though you're standing on the corner of Cedarburg Road and Pioneer? What is your life about? If you can't answer that question thoughtfully, it means you're living on instinct. You're living like an animal. This is what Ecclesiastes is trying to get us to think about. So let's dig in. Let's start with chapter one this morning. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who followed them. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. More knowledge, more grief. There are three modern day Worldviews, sentiments Ecclesiastes 1 confronts. And uh, we'll use the remainder of our time to look at these three. Here are the three statements, worldviews that Ecclesiastes 1 confronts. I'm here to make a difference in the world. I'm here to enjoy the pleasures of the day. I'm here to make myself the best human being possible. I'm here to make a difference in the world. I'm here to enjoy the pleasures of the day. I'm here to make myself the best human being possible possible. Ecclesiastes 1 is a confrontation of all three of these. Let's look at them. First, I'm here to make a difference in the world. This is a common sentiment in our world today. Uh, the formal name given to this is humanism. Oftentimes you'll hear this conveyed at funerals, this, this sentiment, this worldview says one hopes that when all is said and done that we, we have left our mark on the world, that we have made it a better place. But in reality, Ecclesiastes is confronting this. One of the ways it confronts us in this worldview is in verse 11. The philosophy professor says, no one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. How much of a dent can you really make if that's true? Think about this, how much do you remember about your great-great-grandparents? How much have they shaped your daily living when you, how much do you think about them each day as you walk through life? Great-great-grandparents. How much have they changed the world? Now maybe there's a, there's a small handful of us that can somehow trace our lineage way back to you know, Abraham Lincoln or something like that. In which case, I get it, okay, you've got one. But let's let 2,000 years go by. Let's let 4,000 years go by. How about 6,000 years? By that point in time, you know what's gonna happen? Everybody who's lived 6,000 years prior to that, their existence will be inferred. We're going to be like those mummies down at the Milwaukee Public Museum. We don't know their names. We just know how they were embalmed. Let 6,000 years go by, and that's what's going to happen. He's saying no one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. There's a place in Le Mis where... Uh, the young college students are about, they're on the barricade, they're fighting against oppression, and, uh, and they realize that they're going to die. And one guy starts singing, will there be anyone to remember me when I fall? Could it be my life means nothing at all? Is my life just one more life? Am I just one more Life. What's the philosophy professor say? Absolutely. One more life. Any other answer is pure romanticism. Now, this phrase, under the sun, occurs 29 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's an incredibly important phrase to understand. Under the sun is the philosophy professor's thought experiment. He is saying, let's assume that the observable world is all there is. The visible, observable world is all there is. Life as it is, as you see it unfold, as you experience it, that's life under the sun. There's no reference to God in it. Life under the sun is just what is, what you see, what you experience day in and day out in this monotonous prison of life. So one of the ways modern people may try to cope with this reality that life under the sun is all there is, is humanism. They may say, okay, this life is all there is, so I will do my best to make this world a better place. But Ecclesiastes is confronting that. If you're on a ship in the middle of the ocean and it's sinking and there's no hope of rescue and the captain comes to you and says, oh my goodness, the boiler's gonna explode. We've gotta get in there. We have got to get in there and stop it from exploding. If it explodes, the ship is gonna sink two minutes sooner. And you say, what a tragedy. Now, what do you say? He's insisting we've got to get in there and stop the boiler from exploding. You say, well, what do you mean? It's gonna be the end of the ship. The ship's going down already. How much of a tragedy can it be? The philosophy professor is saying to us, look, the real question of the ages is not can we stop a nuclear holocaust? The real question of the ages is not, can we stop environmental disasters? The real question of the ages is, is life under the sun all there is? Because if it is all there is, then nothing you do will mean anything. The ship is going down. Leaving your mark on society is like stopping the boiler from exploding on a ship that's sinking anyway. Life under the sun is all there is. It makes absolutely no difference whether you live the life of humanitarian compassion or you're a real jerk. The ship is going down. If life under the sun is all there is, then even your best efforts are like making a footprint in the sand next to the ocean. The next wave is gonna wipe that out. Ecclesiastes is confronting this worldview of humanism that says, I am here to leave my mark on, the, on society. I am here to make a difference. Ecclesiastes is confronting that idea. Second worldview Ecclesiastes 1 confronts is, I'm here to enjoy the pleasures of the day. This is hedonism. Hedonism says, I'm here to enjoy the pleasures of the day. Now, hedonism can include the party life of drugs, alcohol, sex. But it can also include less overt forms of it. Hedonism could say, well, I am here to enjoy as much as possible my career. I'm here to enjoy vacation and travel and fine dining. So some modern people today will approach life with this attitude that says, if life under the sun is all there is, if if all there is is the observable, visible world that I see unfolding around me, then I'm here to enjoy the pleasures of the day. But Ecclesiastes is also confronting this, (laughs) Verses 7 and 8, all streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. All the things that enter through the eyes and the ears ultimately never quench your thirst. Your career can't, your vacations can't, your fine dining can't, your family can't. Your eyes and your ears will not be satisfied in life under the sun. The observable, visible world, life as it is, none of it can offer you ultimate satisfaction. One of my favorite movies growing up was Chariots of Fire. Uh... It uh, tracks the events of um, the British uh, track team in the run up to the eighth Olympiad. And uh, one of the characters, main characters in the movie, is a guy by the name of Harold Abrahams. Uh, Harold Abrahams is a very driven young man in a desperate pursuit of winning. He wants the gold medal badly. So much so that he hires a professional trainer, which at that time, while it wasn't necessarily illegal, it was definitely frowned upon. There's a scene in the movie um, where Harold is in the training room getting loosened up and ready for the finals of the 100 meter dash in the Olympics. And his trainer's in there, he's working on him, getting him ready. His teammate, Aubrey, um, and friend Aubrey, is in there with him. And in that scene, Harold becomes very contemplative. This is what he says He says, You, Aubrey, are my most complete man. You're brave, compassionate, kind, a content man. That's your secret, contentment. I'm 24 and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit, yet I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. Aubrey, old chap, I'm scared. Now in one hour's time, I'll be out there again. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? Harold goes out there and he wins. He wins the gold medal in the 100 meter dash. He starts celebrating on the track with his teammates and all looks well. One of the following scenes is of Harold in the bar, a bit inebriated, Staring off into the distance as if to say, Is that all there is? Is this it? He enjoyed the pleasures of the day. He reached the pinnacle of professional achievement. And it underdelivered. If life under the sun is all there is and winning the gold medal doesn't satisfy, what's the point? What's the point? The third worldview Ecclesiastes one confronts is I'm here to make myself the best human being possible. So he tries the tactic of self-betterment and self-education. Verses 13 and 14. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. You hear the self-determination in verse 17 as well. Then I apply myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind now there's something we important about this this mention of wisdom that we have to make note of he uses the word wisdom throughout the book in two different ways In the early part of the book, he's using wisdom as in wisdom under the sun, without reference to life beyond it. We think in in Christian circles, we think of wisdom as the fear of God. That's not how he's using the term early on in the book. He's using wisdom under the sun. That is, everything you can glean from the observable world that you live in. He's trying to glean and suck all the marrow out of that. And he's concluding, I've done that. And he's saying it's a chasing after the wind. This is a person determined to self-educate. He's applied his mind to study. He's exploring. He's gaining understanding. This is an enlightened individual. This is a cultured individual. This is not someone who stuck their head in the sand. They're asking tough questions. They're asking questions the previous two are not asking. But because this self-educator is asking tough questions about human existence under the sun without reference to God, he is concluding wisdom under the sun, wisdom under the heavens, is meaningless. What gain is there? What's the point? Why is this philosophy professor coming to this conclusion about education and self-betterment? I think he's actually light years ahead of our modern world. He's very advanced. What do most people say in popular in culture today? What do most people say is the solution to society's ills. Better education, more education. We live in the golden age of ed- education. What has that yielded? London last night? What has that yielded? Broken homes, abuse? Sex trafficking? The philosophy professor is light years beyond 21st century American culture. He's light years beyond us. He is saying, look, you can suck the marrow of wisdom under the sun just in the observable, visible world, and you will ultimately find it's a chasing after the wind. It's meaningless. Stephen Hawking, whether he realizes it or not, exemplifies this mentality. And though his quote is not designed to be a comment on Ecclesiastes, it serves really well what Ecclesiastes is driving at. He once said this, we are just an advanced breed of monkeys on a minor planet of a very average star. He describes, he's describing in this quote, the the results of the pursuit of self-betterment under the sun without reference to God. The people who are asking those questions and wrestling with that stuff are the ones who are becoming most nauseous with life. It's nauseating. When you probe those kinds of topics to that kind of depth without reference to God, just in life under the sun, the observable, visible world, it's nauseating. It's no wonder we try to numb ourselves by keeping ourselves occupied with all the pleasures of the day. We can't stand it. So what do we do about it? If all three of these worldviews, these statements don't ultimately offer satisfactory answers, where do we find them? In typical philosophical form, this professor doesn't give us any answers. He just raises the questions and points out the problems. Which is one of the reasons this book is thoroughly irritating. But it's also why we need to read each passage of Ecclesiastes within the scope of the grand narrative of Scripture's storyline. We have to read each passage of Ecclesiastes within the scope of the grand narrative. Ecclesiastes confronts the ridiculousness of the sentiment, I'm here to make a difference in the world. But if those efforts in life under the sun are tantamount to stopping a boiler from exploding on a ship that's already sinking, what's the point? What's the answer? The only reason those noble efforts are worth anything is if there is life beyond the sun. Then it means something. Then it perhaps accomplishes something then the work can be recognized by the God who exists outside of life under the sun. And if our desire is to see a difference made in this world, then our mantra should be focused around the one who made the biggest difference in the world itself. That's Jesus Christ. Instead of living by the mantra that says, I'm here to leave my mark on the world, we've done a fine job with that as a human race. No, we're not here to leave our mark on the world. Our prayer needs to be Jesus, come make your mark in this world. That's our only hope. Some people live according to the sentiment, enjoy the pleasures of the day, hedonism. But even the most skilled hedonist will succumb to suffering at some point. I think there's a saying in Vegas I don't know this for sure. The house always wins. In life under the sun, suffering always wins. It will always take you. But we need our pleasures forevermore. What we need is the new heavens and the new earth. John writes, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Still others live in pursuit of knowledge, self-education, self-betterment. But knowledge without reference to God is meaningless. If the pursuit of knowledge without reference to God is undertaken, then Stephen Hawking is right, whether he'll admit it or not, we are an advanced breed of monkeys on a minor planet of a very average star. The answer is found in the life death and resurrection of Jesus Christ It's only through that everything we long for will one day come true We long for a world where humanitarian aid isn't needed We long for a world where joy is never interrupted long for a world where compassion isn't overpowered by evil. This world doesn't satisfy these longings. But the world to come, the world Jesus lived, died, and rose again to create, is coming. Scriptures say that when we partake of communion, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes taking of communion is a way in which we declare our hunger and thirst for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ where our deepest longings will finally be satisfied bow your heads close your eyes let's pray God I can't imagine the emptiness of life without you life under the sun in this observable, visible world is all there is. What's the point? We don't have to be atheists, though, to live like this. There are probably people in this room who are experiencing even now the seemingly meaninglessness of life because so many of their waking moments are spent without giving you even a first thought. Many of us are functional atheists. And we're empty and we wonder why. So God, I pray that through this text of scripture, you've revealed to us the promises life under the sun holds out to us, but ultimately disappoint us with. Raise our heads to the heavens where we see you Implant in us a joy that comes from knowing you. Give us purpose as we live in this world. Lord, as we participate in this table now, use these moments to show us the plethora of effects the life, death, and resurrection of your Son has both now and in eternity to come.